Uh, good morning once again, and welcome to Hope Denver. Whether you are here in person, listening online, or by the looks of it, traveling today, uh, you'll hear this on the podcast, so I will, I will talk to you later. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Tyler, one of the pastors, and excited to continue on in our series on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, but before we get started, how many of you had a lot of fun at our church luau last Sunday? I was expecting more Hawaiian garb to show up. I think that should just be a tradition. Um, but if you see Carrie O'Connor, feel free to give her a thank you. She put in a lot of thought and prep and planning to really make that a reality. She is traveling today, but give her a thank you or maybe a, a mahalo, I guess, if you want to be proper. A uh, couple of announcements. There's some exciting things coming up for our church over the next couple of weeks. September is like jam-packed with awesome stuff. Uh, next Sunday will be the table. This will be our second rendition of the table. And if you missed our first, this is a very different Sunday experience where we are gathering around the table together, eating food, discussing important things together. Uh, anyone and everyone is welcome. Uh, we will be meeting not here next Sunday, but at Observatory Park. We're banking on some warm weather before it gets chilly. And we'd ask that you bring a lawn chair and a side, a brunch side to share with everyone else. But again, next Sunday, Observatory Park, not here, chair, brunch side, four items. Got it? All right. The weekend after that, another exciting announcement will be a leadership night. This is Saturday the 18th. Uh, these are evenings in which we want to appreciate all the people who serve so faithfully here at our family. Um, those who are on our, our kids team, our worship team, our greeting team, etc. We want to say thank you for all that you've done and also cast vision for where we think the Lord is leading us next in this next season. Uh, we are going to be meeting downtown at The Source. This should have came out in email this week. Uh, pay attention to socials uh, this week as well. We'll be sending out the address. We'll be 6 p.m. at The Source downtown. We'll be providing food and also some childcare options. So if you need a childcare solution, email in to info at hopedenver.com and we have a solution for you. That's a lot of stuff. There's some fun things happening. <laughs> Did you got that? Write it down. Um, yeah, check out the website, the email, our socials if, if you missed everything that I just said. Um, but as you might know, over the last many weeks, we have been focused in on the fruit of the Spirit, essentially theme by theme, and we've been looking at the lifestyle of a believer who is indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God, which leads to evident change and transformation in their lives. And today, we're going to be focusing in on self-control. And I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think about self-control. For me, I usually first picture a total lack of self-control. Uh, ironically enough, I was writing some of this sermon on a plane to and from Las Vegas, Sin City, where any form of self-control is kind of tough to come by. I made it back, though. But to understand this, this idea, I want to start with a picture of what self-control doesn't look like. Do we have any Johnny Cash fans here this morning? We got a few. You know, I fell into a burning ring fire. Bad impression. That's why I'm not on the worship team and why Lauren won't have me. No, okay, there we go. Cameo. <laughs> but bits of his story are, are really well known. He had an incredible music career, but also a life full of destruction and carnage along the way. He was hooked on drugs, amphetamines to, to be um, specific. He had to take stimulants to really stay awake during many of his tours. Stopped going home for months on time to his wife and his kids, had multiple affairs along the way. In his autobiography, he wrote a full chapter about the cars that he destroyed while he was high. One of these crashes almost caused a forest fire. 
Uh, Johnny Cash is quickly someone that made a mess of his life, his health, his career. He pushed away his family, ostracized his friends and his loved ones. Things got so bad for him that he grabbed a flashlight one day, decided to crawl into a cave, and crawl so far that the batteries would die along the way he'd run out of light. He came here to die and to disappear. A life lacking really any level of self-control, any answer of hope, which led to shame, darkness, and eventually he hoped his death. But it was here in the darkness that he said he actually found God, that the Lord felt closer here than he ever had before. Uh, In his autobiography, he wrote this, The absolute lack of light was appropriate, for at that moment I was far from God as I had ever been. I thought I'd left him, but he hadn't left me. I didn't believe it at first. I felt something very powerful, a sensation of utter peace, clarity, sobriety. I couldn't understand it. How, after being awake for so long and driving my body so hard and taking so many pills, could I possibly feel all right? The feeling persisted, though, and then my mind started focusing on God. There in Nick Jack Cave, I became conscious of a very clear, simple idea. I was not in charge of my own destiny. I was not in charge of my own death. I was going to die at God's time and not mine. I hadn't prayed over my decision to seek death in that cave, but that hadn't stopped God from intervening. The Spirit found Johnny Cash in this cave, pushed him up on his feet and actually out of that cave because he had more in store for him, a different end to his story, fruit yet to grow in him. And two of his friends found him as he emerged from the cave. He wasn't sure how they found him there. He was still high on amphetamine, so they took him to the hospital. And this led to a stretch in his life, actually, of healing, sobriety, and meaning, seemingly out of nowhere. A time when you would probably find him drunk in a bar, he actually went to leading crusades with Billy Graham, singing about a God who could even save a wretch like me. Seemingly zero control in his life to a life controlled by Jesus. It was inexplicable, and it seemed like it came out of nowhere. He credited the Lord for rescuing him. In his own words, he said, putting him back up on his feet. And at 50 years old, his life had just begun. What is it, though, that kind of leads to this type of radical change, those those 180-degree turns that we hear about sometimes? Someone apparently so far off the deep end that other people had lost hope in. He'd lost hope in himself. He gave up on himself. I think if Johnny Cash was here today, he'd say something like it was outside of him, that it was the Spirit of God still wanting to grow in him fruit that he couldn't grow himself. So to focus our discussion in this morning as we're talking about self-control, I I want to zoom in and kind of focus on on three specific questions. The first is, what is self-control? How would we even define it by biblical standards? Secondly, why is self-control important? Why is it important? And thirdly, how do we grow in it? Kind of the what, the how, or the what, the why, and the how. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up to Galatians chapter 5. This is where we've been now for weeks and weeks. And I want to focus in on the verses kind of leading up to the passage in question that discusses the fruit of the Spirit. So Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Envy doesn't feel like it's so bad amongst that list, huh? Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray one more time. Lord, as we come to you this morning and as we we open up your word, as we focus in on this idea of self-control, I pray that you'd help each of us take a bit of an inventory of our own lives. The things that are, are going well, the things that aren't, our emotions, our week this week, the things that we're hoping for, et cetera, et cetera. You know each of us. You know our stories even better than we do ourselves. So I pray, God, that we would take a bit of an inventory this morning and that we'd hear from you, we'd encounter you, and we'd leave here changed. It's in your name again we said, amen. So Galatians 5, we've been spending a lot of time here over the last few weeks. Um, This larger context, though, is kind of the framework in which we find Paul talking about self-control. And we quickly pick up on his own personal and internal battle of what Paul is describing as the flesh and the spirit, two competing entities in our hearts and our minds and our motivations. There's a related line in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The writers here were documenting the work of God's grace progressively in our lives as Christians, kind of growing in us this fruit. They wrote, this sanctification, although imperfect in this life, is affected in every part of man's nature. Some remnants of corruption still persist in every part, and so there arises a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh warring against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. So again, it's within this framework, the framework of our lives, really, that we understand what Paul is talking about. This confession, much like Paul, describe our lives as a battleground an internal battle that will last throughout our lives. Sorry to break that to you. But in this life, we are at least impacted and affected by our fallen nature, the impacts of sin on the world that have also corrupted us, that have twisted us outside of what God had originally designed. If you missed uh, Luke Toll's sermon on kindness from a couple weeks ago, he described this really well. He he described how our flesh leads us to an over-desire, that our sinful motivations are actually counterfeit fruits focused on ourselves instead of others. And I love how he framed that our best attempts here to combat the flesh actually stop at a behavioral level, but that the gospel of Jesus actually attacks this on a deeper, a motivational level. Podcast is there. Go listen to it. It was really good. But so we have the flesh on one side being our fallen, our sinful nature. On the other side, we have God who's redeemed us and made us an entirely new person in which the Spirit now lives. Remember those old cartoons when you had like a caricature of an angel and a devil on opposite shoulders telling you their their perspectives on everything, kind of guiding you? I don't think that's too far off of kind of what it looks like to be a human a lot of the times. Paul isn't the only one, though, that kind of made this claim. James, in chapter 14, verse 1, said, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. 
an evil desire in us that is opposed to God. Peter, in chapter 2, says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. War, a battlefield, war against your soul. Paul, again, in Ephesians 4, says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through your deceitful desires, to be renewed by the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, this is the battleground in which we find our everyday lives, good and evil, old and new, righteous, sinful, a lot to process here. But this is the context in which Paul is talking about self-control. So question one for us, the most important question for us to start with today is, what is self-control? It's described all throughout the scriptures. In Titus 1, he says, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And second, Peter, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness. This isn't a new phenomenon in the scriptures, though. It started on really the first story within the biblical story. At the very beginning, God made everything. He made everything good. He placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and, and said they had one job, not to eat out of one tree. And what did they do? They did it. As you can expect, in a failure of self-control, in an act of pride, they ate the fruit, which God said not to, and has forced this world into a tailspin that we still find ourselves in today. Self-control used in English, I think, kind of describes and defines itself. Merriam-Webster defines it as to exercise restraining or directing influence over. You put a self in front of that, and I think you get the idea. The translation uh, in the Bible comes from a Greek word pronounced in gratia, used in the New Testament to mean self-mastery, self-restraint, temperaments, continence. It's this idea of having dominion over oneself over our passions, our desires, our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings, our motivations, really all of who we are. But a critical detail here, especially after saying the word self so many times today, is that this is a mastery that comes from within oneself, but not by ourselves. Again, it comes from within ourselves, but not by ourselves. Confession time. A couple of weeks ago, I ate almost an entire box of Oreos, uh, basically in one afternoon. They're so good. I know you're like, gross, but you all, you all have your vices too. Mine's Oreos. It was just one after another. I usually eat one side, then the cream, then the other side, kind of in that order, times 25, like in a couple of hours. There's way more than one serving size. So I brought some here today. I'm going to set these over here. Far away enough, hopefully, not to tempt me. And I'm going to try really hard not to think about them, not to look at them, not to smell them, not to open up the box. Because I think our typical idea of self-control is really just self-reliance. Believing that within our own discipline and strength, we can withstand our temptations and grow in self-control. Second confession, I'm just laying this all out there. Most nights after Cassie and I put the girls to bed, we want to have something sweet. So we want a cookie or ice cream or cake or dark chocolate, which is high in antioxidants. It's, it's basically a salad. <laughs> and we sit down on the couch, and I just, again, I just keep eating, and eventually it gets to this point where I say, Cassie, get these away from me. Get them out of my sight. I can't have another one, and that's what I need in the moment. She's kind of a helper. 
What I'm getting at, point one today, with all these Oreos, 25 of them, is that biblical self-control comes through the Spirit working in us and through us instead of our best attempts and efforts. And back to that battleground analogy in verses 16 and 17, again says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so you are not to do whatever you want. This juxtaposition here that, that Paul is talking about, flesh and the Spirit, actually finds itself in kind of a greater juxtaposition that he was talking about in Galatians. Paul is describing the blessings of God being available to all people through Jesus instead of simply the blessings coming through the Torah and the law meant for the Jews. So the Jews are responding to him saying the Torah was a proven way of following God's will and remaining righteous. So they weren't sure how people who weren't Jewish would learn to do this. But Paul essentially responds to them saying it is Christ's transforming presence through the Spirit that is really the key. See, the Jews were worried that non-Jewish people wouldn't have the power to live out the law. And Paul says Jesus actually fulfilled the law on our behalf and now lives in us through the Spirit, making us new humans, growing in us his fruit. The Spirit is the key differentiator, the key difference, the key detail to kind of walk this thin line in this battle. Following me. So why does this matter? Next question for us to to ask this morning is, why why does self-control matter? Why is it important? Go back to verse 19 through 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, envy just doesn't seem so bad compared to other things on that list. That's a scary list. Like, I reread it, you just say, yikes. You don't need a seminary degree or theological training of any kind to realize that these things will not lead to good things in your life. It's a list that just is stressful. We read about things here that will lead to chaos, to ruin, a lack of health, broken relationships, prison, maybe even death. These are things that will lead to to real consequences for us. N.T. Wright has has a really good quote about the fruit of the Spirit, specifically self-control. He writes, All of the fruit of the Spirit can be counterfeited by happy, healthy young people, save one, self-control. Meaning, we can will ourselves to appear loving, at least appear that way, I think, We can find the inner strength to be patient on occasion if we really try hard. We can be kind to people that we really want to be kind to. We can show some level of peace, at least on the outside. With enough effort and health and good fortune, we can pretend to show these fruit. We can counterfeit them. But we can't counterfeit self-control. We can't pretend to be in control. These things will find their way out in our lives. And you might be sitting there today talking to me saying, Tyler, I don't practice witchcraft. Debauchery is like usually not on my weekend plans or whatever. I'm just a really boring person. But someone like Johnny Cash might have said the same thing at one point in his life. His big issues might have been smaller at one point, and with an ongoing lack of self-control, I think they compounded. 
Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. So the point is, it's pretty simple. Self-control protects us from ruin. Back to those Oreos for a moment that I said I wasn't going to look at. That afternoon where I ate 25 of them, a total lack of self-control. That is what the author from Proverbs was talking about. Like, no defenses. I was totally vulnerable for attacks by sugar, pummeled cookie after cookie. It led to a stomach ache. And I think if we're honest, we've probably all had a situation like that, a story like that in our lives, right? We look back and we just say, how in the world did we let that happen? But when we look at that list in Galatians, I think it's easy for us initially to feel a bit disconnected, like fits of rage, like maybe I get frustrated sometimes, but not fits, or drunkenness, like maybe I have a glass of wine on occasion, too many, but drunkenness isn't part of my life. This list just like feels like the end of the world. We don't usually wake up and say, like on a Saturday morning, I am worried about orgies, debauchery, and dissensions. Those aren't things on my to-do list. And in a much less severe scenario on that Saturday afternoon, I didn't willingly decide I was going to eat a billion Oreos. It just kind of happened. My defenses were down. And even though I haven't really had many Oreos since that day, Deep inside me remains the flesh, the battle, the desire for another Oreo is there, and I know it could pop up at any moment. Again, self-control protects us from ruin. Even more so, I think self-control protects us from the flesh that can surface when we're not expecting it, like myself that afternoon. See, if we realize we live in a constant state of battle deep within our hearts, our minds, our desires, our motivations, we have to always be ready to defend ourselves. We can't just assume the battle has been won. We can't take a day off. We can't get lethargic. Because if we do, and if you're like me, the flesh can win sometimes. That's just the the honest truth. But what Paul is getting at here in Galatians is that the flesh does not have the final say nor does it have the ultimate authority in our lives. And while Jesus has made us a new creation in the Spirit, did you know he also prays for you? In Romans 8 we read, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In Hebrews 7 we read, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I wanted to include those two specific verses because I think within this picture of a battlefield being the lives that we live, it can be discouraging at times. Picturing that can be scary, unsettling, tiring, if we're honest. As we picture a city with broken walls, no defenses, it can feel at times like we will never win the battle for our own self-control. I've felt that way before. But beneath the surface, you have a Savior who died and rose from the dead in power and glory and hope, who is constantly praying for you in this battle. He is the one we read about in Galatians, who actually himself crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He did that for you. You have an active and powerful ally in the battle, and while the walls of the city might be breached for a moment, he is the one that will ultimately push the flesh back once and for all, And it's his spirit that lives in you, that indwells you, that empowers you in this battle, and he will win on your behalf. So the what and the why. I want to end today just with a few kind of random thoughts on the how. How do we grow in self-control? 
I think if we're all honest, we can all grow here together. I can. I've confessed that to you. There are my Oreos on display. But a few ideas for us on how we can grow in self-control. The first thought is that self-control is not achieved alone. The Christian faith was never meant to be one to be lived alone. Throughout the scriptures, we find the followers of Jesus committed to gathering with one another. This is why we're gathered here today. This is why we gather together throughout the weeks. We've modeled this practice after how Jesus lived his life in close proximity with others. And I'm a firm believer that as you spend time with others who are focused on growing in self-control in the fruit of the spirits, you'll grow in them too. And as individualistic as a culture as we live in, this can look very different than the world around us, but it is foundational to our movement. And there's two specific things that I think happen within community, life shared with others. Exposure and encouragement. Exposure, we'll start there. Community can expose who we really are. That sounds scary, maybe, but it helps us take a true inventory of ourselves. When we live life with other people, our stuff just comes out. It can be put on display. Our anger problems, our selfishness, our our vices, our lusts, we just simply can't hide. Author pastor Pete Scazzaro uh, calls this our shadow side. This is something the pastors here have talked through with one another. He defines the shadow side as the accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure thoughts, that while largely unconscious, strongly influence and shape your behaviors. It is the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. We all have a shadow side, all of us, pastors included. And sometimes I think self-control is really hard because we're not aware of that shadow side, which is why community is so critical. Although initially painful, those around us can help make us aware to that shadow side before it leads to ruin. Maybe a more happy thought is encouragement. (laughs) On the flip side of that is encouragement. I I often say that relationships are where we find our, our deepest pains in life, but community is also, I think, where we experience our deepest healing. And community centered around the way of Jesus, I believe, is where you receive your greatest encouragement, your greatest healing, and the greatest hope you need to grow in self-control. Community here, centered around Jesus, is a safe place to stumble and fall, but also that you have trusted others committed to your best all around you to lift you back up again. Again, self-control isn't achieved alone. Second thought is something Paul said, actually, here in Galatians, is to keep in step with the Spirit. Paul mentions this in verse 25, but what does that mean? Uh, The Holy Spirit is not a force or an energy or something like that. He is a person, him being God. He's relational. He can be experienced. The idea as we translate keeping in step with the Spirit from Greek essentially means to walk in line behind a leader meaning the Spirit leads us in this, but I don't think we can expect to grow in self-control if we just simply do nothing at all. I think this is very much a cooperative effort, which means that we grow in in self-control as we grow in relationship with Christ. And here's where the spiritual disciplines come in, which are really a means to an end. We don't simply pray just to pray. We don't meditate on the scriptures daily just to say we got them done. We don't memorize the word of God to complete a task. They're a means to an end. These are ways in which we can grow in relationship with Him and keep in step with the Spirit. So for starters, if if you're struggling with self-control in some area of your life, 
I think a good starting point is simply to cry out for help. And in that, I think you'll find a relational God through the Spirit actively ready to listen and help you in that help. And third thought today, and I'll invite the worship team um, to come back up as we kind of get to a close. Third thought for how how we grow in self-control is uh, that we should desire the Father over the fruit. This is something that Pastor Ike mentioned in Team First a few weeks back. I'm just stealing from everyone today. I'm kind of regurgitating that. He probably said something more profound, more elaborate than I'm about to. But while we desire these fruits of the Spirit, they aren't really about our effort or work at all. These are fruits that he grows in us. Many of you uh, know our daughter Zoe. She's so cute here at church, right? She's just so cute. But behind the scenes, she is entering into her terrible twos. She turns two in a couple of weeks, which means that she's realizing she can protest anything and everything she wants with no capacity for self-control to process her emotions right now. So, Randomly, she'll throw herself on the floor sometimes. She will scream and cry out of nowhere. She punched the dishwasher last night. Last night, I saw it. She might hit or punch you or pinch you. When she doesn't get her way, there's just lots of drama in our house right now. And the parenting advice from the expert bloggers out there, expert bloggers, would tell you, you cannot reason with a toddler. And it's like, duh, of course you can't. You can't logically reason with someone, a toddler, who is out of control. It's just going to be a lose-lose for both of you. My temptation, though, as a father, is to focus on her behavior, to correct her, to change the way she is acting, and show her why she's being so ridiculous. But the experts, again, will tell you, it's actually pretty smart, it's working, will tell you, as a parent, you're supposed to create a safe place for them to identify their emotions. So this looks kind of funny, but it is. Zoe, you seem so angry right now, huh? Or, Zoe, it looks like that makes you sad when you don't get more bunnies, right? (laughs) So instead of immediately correcting her and focusing on her behavior, I'm just making myself available to her to process these emotions and her lack of self-control. And I think we have a God who acts very similarly with us. When we are so focused on our mistakes and improving, He just desires us. In those moments where we are struggling for the fruit, the moments of self-reliance with the Oreos, I think he just wants us to come to him in brutal honesty, with open requests, with desperation at times. And I wonder what would happen if our desire for the Father eclipsed our desire for the fruit when it comes to self-control in this battle that we've been discussing this morning. See, these fruits grow in us only because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's his gospel that allows us to then approach him. It was, not, it was him, not us, that crucified the desires of the flesh. And in turn, we can approach him now. These aren't fruits of our collective labor and toil, our effort or our aspirations. They are fruits of the Spirit. He is the one that grows them in us. So would you stand with me once more? as we pray. Lord, as we kick things off this morning, I, I pray that you would help us take an inventory of ourselves, an inventory of, of our lives, our everyday lives, finding them within this battle. The flesh and the spirit can be exhausting at times. 
And for each of us, I know individually there's different stories here. Some of us are struggling with self-control. Others feel like we're getting it done well. But wherever we're at, Lord, I pray that each of us would come to you this morning with open hands, maybe with feelings of desperation, asking for help. And Lord, as a loving Father that you are, I pray that you would be there to simply listen, to hear us out, to make yourself available to us when we really need it. And God, would you remind us in grace it is not our effort, our toils, our desires, but it is you. It's your spirit that indwells us, that empowers us, and that eventually grows in us fruit that can change our lives. So I pray that over those here this morning, those listening, God, that you would continue to grow in us your fruit, not ours. We're grateful for you, Lord. And as we sing once more, I pray that you would direct your attention to him. You'd continue to take this inventory of your lives and that you would realize there is a God who is willing, ready, and available to hear you out.